employ someone who's naturally tenacious and somebody who's prepared to pick up the damn phone and then structure their day so that they do nothing else other than have conversations with prospective customers. Welcome closers. Today we have another episode of the Profitable Property Management Podcast coming at you. This is season two on sales. I'm your host, Jordan Moyla, and every week I interview world-class property management entrepreneurs and industry experts who share actual insights to help you grow your property management empire. So whether you manage a hundred or a thousand units, this broadcast is designed to help you see the big picture and give you the tools and tactics that you need to get to the next level. I don't throw darts at a board. I bet on sure things. Sweet Sun Tzu, the art of war. Every battle is won before it's ever fought. Think about it. Today, I am talking with Justin Rothmarsh, the author of The Machine, a radical approach to the design of the sales function. And guys, it is pretty radical. Justin is also the founder of Ballistics, a consulting firm that builds and re-engineers sales environments from the ground up. He's been doing this for um, 15 years plus, and he's been building more efficient sales functions to help companies really just grow, dominate their market. And the work that he's done is called sales process engineering. In our chat today, we're going to go over what exactly sales process engineering is and why it's so important for property management entrepreneurs to consider. Justin is going to walk us through what this looks like in practice from the organizational structure to compensation. Got some really interesting perspectives on compensation. And guys, because Justin's actually made a business out of this, because he's doing this on an enterprise level, he tends to work with larger organizations, works with a lot of manufacturing organizations, etc. But I just want to assure you right now, what we are talking about could not be more relevant to the property management industry. And I am so excited that Justin has come on the show with us today. Welcome to the show, Justin. Hey, Jordan. Nice to be here. You've really taken a radical approach and you have some some controversial perspectives within the context of sales process engineering. And I just want to start with why it's even necessary. What is wrong with sales today that has merited the the thought leadership and the body of, of work that you've developed? So if you think about it, a typical sales function today looks like manufacturing would have looked about 100 years ago. If you imagine you could climb into a time machine and travel back in time 100 years or so, then if you were to go into a manufacturing facility, let's assume a a cobbler. Interestingly, I like to pick on cobblers because they virtually don't exist anymore. So cobblers were people who made shoes. Of course, today it's very hard to find cobblers because people simply don't make shoes anymore. Shoes are made in factories. And really, that's the, the big realization is that in the past 100 years ago, manufacturing was an activity performed by people. Today, manufacturing is a process performed by groups of people. The essential difference is what's called division of labor. And division of labor shouldn't really be a radical idea anymore because it's been embraced in every facet of the organization, the modern organization, except for sales. Um, So we have clear division of labor in production environments, in engineering environments, in marketing, in um, finance, in every single part of the organization except for the sales function. And in the modern sales function, 
bizarrely, we still have the situation where sales is an activity performed essentially by a single person. And we're, of course, railing against that and arguing that it makes sense and it's long overdue for us to apply division of labor to in, in a principled way to the sales function. I love it. So the whole engineering mindset, then engineering perspective, one of the early books that I read, really one of the first books that was put in in my hands was The Goal. That was a really helpful book to me early on, but I read that maybe a decade ago. I didn't have complete context. I feel like a lot of the work that you're doing is kind of building off of that. Can you just kind of briefly touch on the theory of, of constraints and the degree to which what you're doing is kind of building on that framework? It does build on that framework, although the book, The Goal, was written to address a problem that most organizations simply don't have in sales because the sales function isn't sophisticated enough to have this problem. So The Goal was Ellie Goldratt's book from about 30 years ago that introduced what he called theory of constraints. And the theory of constraints is really an approach to resource planning in a production environment. It's basically a new algorithm for, or a simple algorithm for, for doing what's called scheduling in a production environment. And his critical realization was that what well, was around uh, the, the interplay that exists between variability and dependent events. I'm not going to go into it in detail because I can't do justice to it. But, but the important point is that the goal kind of assumes um, division of labor. I'm a, a hugely passionate about that book and about theory of constraints, but I realized when I read the book that, that the goal doesn't apply to sales even though it should. I had been experimenting for five or six years with the application of division of labor to sales, and reading the goal solved some problems for me that I was encountering, but, but they were problems that I wouldn't have been aware of prior to going, to going down this path. So I think the essential idea... Uh, for us, isn't theory of constraints. The essential f idea for us is division of labor in a principled way. And what mm -hmm. I mean by principled way is that it's not just enough to have folks in your sales functions with different business cards. In order to implement division of labor in a principled way, it's essential for folks to have clear demarcation lines between their responsibilities and the responsibilities of others. So to talk in more concrete terms, if you look at a salesperson in you know one of our followers' organizations, you would see that that salesperson does nothing other than have meaningful selling conversations. They do nothing else. They don't write proposals. They don't get involved in customer service. They don't even schedule their own meetings if they're field-based. They do nothing other than have, you know, face-to-face -face or ear-to-ear -ear selling conversations. Nothing. And it, it's what they don't do that's more important than what they do do. I love that. So you really focused on freeing them up to pursue their highest point of contribution. I guess, and, and, I and that's particularly important in sales because in other environments, if you employ somebody who's a welder, their natural tendency will be to weld above all else. But the interesting thing about sales is we need to recognize that even for those people who enjoy sales, who are good at it, human beings do not engage in the critical activities that are required to, to generate business in their resting state. You know, special effort is required. You know, folks talk about call reluctance. It requires a lot of effort to pick up the phone and make outbound calls or to, to pick up the phone and engage proactively in, in selling. So people don't, nat except for occasional freaks, it, it's not people's resting state. It's very important that we design sales environments so that salespeople have nothing to do but sell.
So let's dig into division of labor. A couple of concepts here. Number one, if you break down all of the tasks involved in selling, a subset of these, of these are going to be lower or higher value tasks, at least in terms of what a market-based wage would look like to pay somebody to uh, update CRM versus to do outbound phone calls. So if you have one body doing it, you're invariably either over or underpaying them because of the, the broad variety of tasks that you're expecting them to do, right? The, that's part of the piece of it. The other piece of it is there's a lack of focus. And the point that you just made is if you provide somebody a smorgasbord or a menu of options, and one of these options is cold calling, no matter what the other nine options are, and the likelihood is that they're not going to pick option 10, which is cold calling. Well, what well, will happen well, is, is the other nine will expand to fill all of their available time. And, and they, they will intend to get to, to the phone, but they will never actually get to the phone. So another part of the division of labor, because I feel like this is just really the, the crux of the issue, and there is some division of labor, at least enterprise sales, you think about the model of having an SDR, an account executive, etc. So it's not like there's no attempts at division of labor have been made. I'm ca- very careful to say principled approach to division of labor. I mean, that's not a principled approach to the division of labor. SDRs and um, account execs, whatever they're called, are essentially performing the same activity. It's not division of labor. So I'm, I'm not a fan of the SDR approach. I, I don't think it makes sense. I think that if you're really keen on winning a customer, it's pretty important they talk to your best salesperson first, not some 22-year-old novice. Let's dig in. SDR, that's a sales development representative. In an enterprise sales model, that's the lowest paid person in that department. They're all about raw outbound. They're scrubbing, doing qualification to determine whether or not a prospect has potential. Once potential is shown, then they're progressively handed off, depending on how big the sales org is, until eventually they talk with the sales executive, who's the, the hired gun, the guy that has you know the magic, the guru inside the org, if you will, and that's the closure. What just is saying is rather than segmenting the funnel from top to bottom, you have a different form of of segmentation in mind, division of labor in mind. What what is your perspective on how what what it means to do it in a principled way? The whole problem with this idea of scrubbing of lower lower paid people and, and, and therefore lower skilled people doing scrubbing and qualification is that from the prospect's perspective. Um, there's no material difference between a telephone call you have with someone who's scrubbing you or qualifying you than there is with a person whose job is salesperson. So your sure. perception is always going to be whoever you're talking to at Acme is mm-hmm. a salesperson. And what ends up happening is your first involvement with Acme is, w- is with a 22-year-old inexperienced salesperson who's attempting to scrub you on the telephone. So so it, it's fine if you're lucky enough to be in a business where you have a stampede of people trying to transact with you and, and the role of your SDRs is basically to man the velvet ropes to keep the riffraff out. But in uh-huh. most organizations, that that's not the case. In most organizations, you know, there's no queue of people wanting to transact. And therefore, it doesn't make a lot of sense to have our poorer salespeople having first contact with the marketplace because most sales opportunities are abandoned after one or two conversations. If you have any inexperienced people performing those first one or two conversations, then you're going to walk away from a significant volume of conversations that you could have had if you were prepared to put your experienced salespeople up front. So what that means is the marketing department in our world has to be very, very careful to screen prospects properly 
before they allocate them to salespeople. Because our, our feeling is the minute somebody picks up the phone and makes an outbound call, that is a selling conversation, whether you want it to be or not, from the customer's perspective. So you're better off serving up a smaller volume of uh, prospects. Mm, higher quality leads. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so part of what I'm hearing you say is that you're not a big believer in in straight cold prospecting, where the salesperson got the list themselves. You're you're talking about some kind of a, a pre filter on the front side to really. If a salesperson is only having selling conversations, that means that somebody else has to be responsible for customer service. It also means that someone else has to be responsible for generating those sales opportunities for them. So in our world, if a salesperson comes to work and puts their headset on, somebody has already topped up their queue that morning. They finished the day yesterday with maybe 70 opportunities in queue. Uh, they started the day yesterday with 80. They worked all day. They ended up with 70 in queue because they abandoned a bunch, maybe one, one or two. And this morning, somebody has topped up their queue again. So they always have a full queue of sales opportunities. And those sales opportunities have been carefully selected by the marketing department before they were pushed to salespeople so that marketing is re reasonably confident that on average, those opportunities are going to produce an economic return on salespeople's limited capacity. So is there room for outbound selling in this framework or is this primarily centered around an inbound paradigm? No, there is room for outbound. Outbound is critical in most organizations simply because most organizations can't generate the mm -hmm, volume of right. sales opportunities they need. The difference is, is that you just have to accept that if you want to be effective with outbound, you need capable salespeople making those outbound calls, not SDRs. Okay, so the segmentation then has to do more with the activities and the tasks, correct? Correct, yeah. All right, so let's get into that, because a second ago you alluded to that your distaste to the idea that you're going to have the SDRs, the lower paid, less skilled person doing outreach, etc. To what degree do you believe that sales is a skill-based function? Because surely you recognize the power of charisma, all of the things that we traditionally think of as sales, the guy that has the positioning, the body language, uh, the word tracks, etc. I realize that on the whole, you're dismissive of just getting a bunch of these guys and, and letting them run wild. But to what degree do you believe that sales is a skill-based position? Oh, to a huge degree. Just from a pragmatic perspective, if somebody's not skilled, they're not going to be much good at it. And if they're not much good at it, they're going to uh, find it painful and they're probably not going to stick with the job. So skills are critical if you want to keep people. And obviously, they're critical if you want folks to be Effective. Interestingly, and you kind of alluded to this in your preamble there or in your question, a lot of the folks who are attracted to sales, and I'm not sure if they're attracted to sales, if they just end up in sales because they don't have any other option. But a lot of the folks who end up in sales don't necessarily have the finest communication skills. You know, I go into organizations quite frequently and discover that the salespeople are poorer communicators than some of the folks in the engineering department. And I think the reason for that is that the folks in the engineering department um, have too much self-esteem to be prepared to work on commission and to be, to, to be prepared to work in that environment, but they're much better communicators. So I think that unfortunately, the traditional structure of sales doesn't necessarily attract the most skilled people. Now, if you're talking about SAP, where, where salespeople have the ability to earn you know, 600000 to a million, million dollars right. a year, then sure, sure you're going to flush out some talented folks. But I think for your clients or for your listeners, 
then they're not going to be paying the kind of money where where it's even an option to attract those kind of playmaker yes. type characters. Yes, so true. I'm so with you on that. So context is everything. Generalized advice, for the most part, is always going to get clubbed over the head by context-specific advice. So the context here is small businesses that either don't have a functional sales department or they just hired somebody in that seat. They just hired their first BDM. They're thinking through compensation and they're struggling because they don't have more than 50, 80, 100K a year to drop into that seat. It's an unproven model. And the idea of division of labor sounds great, but they got they have these things that are intention. They have both the pressure to do the lead gen sort of thing. So they got to build out that marketing function to then get somebody that they can actually feed if they want them doing primarily outbound, but they're not quite there. So they want to supplement with some outbound. And it ends up just being a complete mess because the person comes into the organization, they get no formal training. They're unclear on what their key priority is. The compensation model is potentially working against them. There's a lot going on there. Where would you say that a small business should start? What should the priority be of all of these considerations in light of that context? Okay, so, so I think we need to recognize that sales as a function needs to be outbound, or sales as a skill, I guess, as a, as a role, needs to be outbound. So if you're talking about adding sales to your business, hopefully we're not talking about somebody who's just going to answer the damn phone. That's not sales, that's customer service. If we're talking about <laughs> sales, presumably we're talking about somebody who's going to pick up the damn phone and start conversations that weren't going to occur otherwise. Demand generation. Well, yeah, or business development. Uh, demand generation kind of means something a little different, but, but I would say business development. Now, so proactive. The best starting point for a small business would be to, where skills is concerned, find someone who's naturally tenacious. I'm sure we've all got daughters or sisters, or we know folks who've got daughters or sisters or sons or whatever the case is, but who are, you know, tenacious. So employ someone who's naturally tenacious and somebody who's prepared to pick up the damn phone and then structure their day so that they do nothing else other than have conversations with prospective customers. It's harder than it sounds. If you take that advice seriously and do exactly that, then you will you will grow unless there's something fundamentally wrong with your business. And and the key number that you want to watch is how many meaningful selling conversations a day. And I would expect 20 to 30, a salesperson should have 20 to 30 meaningful selling conversations a day, which means they probably, assuming they're inside, which means they probably pick up the phone, you know, 70 or 80 times. They have 20 to 30 meaningful selling conversations a day and they do nothing else. So then what do you do with the inbound leads? Do you let them touch them or is that handled by, is that literally handled by uh, the receptionist and a customer service person? Well, you have to question whether they are inbound opportunities or whether they are inbound business. If it's inbound business, it shouldn't go to sales. It should simply go to customer service to be processed. If somebody rings and they say, I, I, I want one of those things just like the last one I bought, or I want one of those things just like my neighbor bought, then that's, that doesn't require salesmanship. It just requires somebody to take the money, you know, grab mm. the credit card details. It's customer service. If somebody rings and, and they have a general interest, but they don't know specifically what they want, then fair enough, you can route that to sales. But you want to make sure that of the 30 selling conversations your salesperson has in a day, only a very small number of those conversations, maybe four or five of them, come from um, inbound 
opportunities like that, unsolicited inbound, in other words, because if it's if it's too great a percentage, if it if it starts to approach twenty or thirty percent, what you're going to find is that your salesperson will will stop picking up the phone and will simply wait for the for those inbound calls. All right, so let's graduate from one body. Let's graduate to two bodies. So the the entrepreneur is willing to make the bet to invest into people. Compensation is kind of tied up in this conversation, but with two people present, the immediate opportunity for division of labor happens. What are those early steps? Is that dividing initial outreach versus follow up? What does early division of labor look like? So I'm assuming that you have division of labor from day one. In other words, in, de- in describing the salesperson's role as having meaningful selling conversations and doing nothing else, that already presupposes division of labor. It presupposes that you have a customer service rep there who can generate quotes and do all of the transactional stuff meaning that none of that lands on the salesperson. It also presupposes that somebody else is queuing up sales opportunities for the salesperson. So the critical division of labor has already occurred. What I was thinking of as one person, you were actually thinking of as either two or three people already. It it depends how big the firm is. If it's a small firm, let's say there's less than 10 people in the firm, you're probably in a situation where you have sort of an all-hands-on-deck approach to, to business, which isn't optimal. Obviously, it's not efficient. But when you're a small business, you don't have a choice. But I think as you start to grow, the key to growing successfully is to recognize that, well, we need to migrate towards division of responsibilities, division of labor. And then number two, we need to think, well, where should we apply division of labor? Where should we have clear demarcation lines between responsibilities in order to maximize our rate of growth? It would be far more beneficial for you to have a strict division of responsibilities where your salesperson was concerned than it would be to have a strict division of responsibilities where your receptionist is concerned. So I'm assuming that on day one, when you add your first salesperson, you've taken those non-sales activities, so customer service and prospecting or, or marketing, you're simply making sure that those activities get done. I don't care who does them, but they need to get done because if somebody isn't going to do those activities and you add a salesperson, then in a month's time, your salesperson isn't going to be a salesperson anymore. They're going to be a customer service rep or half CSR, half marketing person. And the end result is there's going to be precious little selling occurring. Right. So I'm thinking about all the objections that you might encounter with this philosophy. And one of them is, well, if I'm paying this salesperson all this money, then why wouldn't I have them do follow up and handle all these other things as opposed to allowing them to get outsourced to somebody else in the company? That objection is kind of idiotic. So we shouldn't allow people to make, I mean, I'm sure people will ask that question, but there are certain questions where you, you need to tap the person on the shoulder who asked that question and say, dude, did you really mean to ask that question? I, I don't, and I'm not, I don't, don't mean to dump on you, Jordan, because you're absolutely correct. People are going to ask that question. But what we need to understand is that people who are capable of and prepared to sell generate enormous value. So it doesn't make sense to say, well, we're going to have a person in the sales role and have them do a bunch of stuff other than selling. Mm-hmm. because of this thing called opportunity cost. Well, so this is the the revenue versus the cost mindset, Justin. And you know this, and I know this, but we're also aware of the fact that some people orientate towards money going out the door as a revenue opportunity, and some people orientate it around it being a cost center. And for small businesses, they really feel the pain of writing and signing those checks. So if I know I'm paying the salesperson $80,000, then... 
there's this anxiety around the unknown. When you hire a receptionist or a person in operations, there's less of an unknown. You can see the number of, of widgets that are getting put out or the number of hand crank rotations that are happening. But this unknown variability with the sales outcome, the results that come from it creates a lot of anxiety for small businesses. If you structure sales properly, it shouldn't be like that. I agree that in a traditional environment, it is because you employ a salesperson, you pay them a shit ton of money and you hope that somehow they, via some kind of bizarre magic, they end up booking revenue for you. But that, but we're not advocating you manage sales like that. We're advocating that you maintain a queue of 80 sales opportunities at all times for your salesperson and you make sure that your salesperson has 30 meaningful selling conversations a day. Those things are necessary conditions. Those, thi- those things are things that your salesperson has to do in order to keep their job. If I employed a person and paid them $80,000 a year, which is probably on the high side for your customers, I suspect, and I was confident that A, they were a tenacious, capable communicator, and B, that they were going to consistently have 30 meaningful selling conversations a day, I would have no concern at all that that person was going to more than pay for themselves. And if they didn't, you would quickly spot it and let them go again. I mean, the great thing about the US, and one of the things I love about working here is if folks don't work out, you can let them go. Some of our clients in other countries, and and certainly Australia where I'm from, it's a lot harder to let someone go who's not working out. But in the US, you don't have that consideration, particularly for small businesses. Before we go on, I want to mention our show sponsor, the PM Growth Summit, which is happening at the end of January in 2018. If you consider yourself a growth-minded property management entrepreneur... If you're interested in leveling up your sales and marketing game, and if you want to go pro and network with other best-in-class entrepreneurs and stay on the bleeding edge of the industry, you need to be at the PM Grow Summit. We truly bring in the best of the best, and you can get your ticket now by going to www.pmgrowsummit.com and using the coupon code JORDAN, that's J-O-R-D-A-N, to get $100 off your ticket. See you there. So one of the obvious ways that people want to de-risk it, though, is to say, hey, instead of paying them 100K, 80K, 50K, whatever it is, let's just really focus on this commission-based model where if they don't produce, they don't result. Don't work, don't eat. That's the Protestant work ethic. What are the problems, though, that come with that commission-based compensation model? The problem with putting people on commission is they don't work for you. They work for themselves. So if you put someone on commission, they're essentially an agent. It's up to them to design their day and up up to them to determine their own rate of work because ultimately they're responsible for their income. If I'm going to employ someone and take on the risk that's associated associated with employing somebody, and there's always risk. It's very hard nowadays to pay someone 100% commission. You're always going to have to pay them a retainer plus commission. And the retainer is probably going to be 40 to 50K. So you're, you're always on the hook for a decent amount of money anyway. So if, if I'm going to take a risk on somebody... I I want them working for me. I want to dictate what they do and when they do it. I don't want selling to be optional. I want it to be mandatory. So I have no interest in commissions whatsoever, and I have no interest in folks who insist on earning commissions. I'll pass them over every time to employ someone who would rather work on a salary basis. I talked before about going into environments where the folks in the engineering department are better communicators than folks in the sales department. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the reasons why, because higher caliber people, unless you're talking about the SAP or the Oracle salesperson who earns a million bucks a year, higher caliber people are not prepared to work on a 
retainer plus commission basis, especially not if the outcome of that is they're going to earn $60,000, $70,000 a year, which is the case, I think, for your listeners. So you just indicated that commissions make selling optional, but by the same token, does it also tend to make the management function optional? You talk about management abdication. What is the relationship there? Because I certainly see this mindset of saying, hey, you know, we've created a commission-based structure, and if you want to make a million dollars, you can, but it's all on you. Do you feel that the commission-based wage also has a mindset on the management end and implications there as well? Yes. So paying people commission is an alternative to management. An alternative to management. Write that down, guys. It is an alternative to management. Okay, proceed. Why? Well, what you're saying is that I am going to trust in the fact that the the smell of the carrot will cause the donkey to trudge forward. And that's so deeply flawed. There's so much research contradicting that. Yes, flawed to the point where, as years go on, Jordan, I'm becoming less and less interested in having this argument with folks because I think if folks truly believe that it's an, it's a sad indictment on either their understanding of human nature or on themselves if they are drawing insight into human nature from from introspection what you mean by that is that in every other function of the business the title of whether it be receptionist or property manager etc the title and the annualized flat remuneration is enough to expect that that person will do their job because they have a job. But in the sales function, somehow we think that only on the basis that they have the, the commission, that's the only basis upon which you can expect anybody to actually do anything. Yes. The assumptions that underpin commissions simply are not borne out by even the most cursory analysis of human nature. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Humans simply do not perform that, behave that way, particularly when we're talking, you know, property management. If we're talking million-dollar software sales, you can mount a stronger argument. I still won't buy it, but you can mount a strong, stronger argument. But certainly we're, what we're talking about here, it really doesn't make any sense. If you're a small business and this is a risky hire, you need to be, you as the manager need to be in control. You need to employ someone. You need to say, there's the chair. Here's the headset. I need you to have 30 selling conversations a day, every single day. Mm -hmm. The activity-based model is all about saying that by asking you to do that, to some degree, we're acknowledging that sales is not voodoo. Yes, there is absolutely skill, communication. Those things definitely matter. But the more that we get more specific on breaking down the role and we get granular on our expectations on an activity-based level, the more we can have a coherent conversation that feels less like just praying to the gods. Exactly. So, I mean, activity is not everything, but it's true. But activity is certainly 70, 80% of everything. Get a, a decent volume of sales activity and then fine tune from there. And where most folks fall flat, where sales is concerned, is not enough activity, not enough selling conversations. It, mm-hmm. it, you know, if we go into an environment, the very first thing we will do is crank up selling conversations to 20 to 30 per salesperson per day. And then we'll look around after a few weeks and say, well, what's not working here? Oftentimes you discover that once you've got the volume of conversations up, all of a sudden the sales are coming in. Mm-hmm. And, and what you have to worry about is if you get the volume of conversations up and the sales aren't coming in, then maybe there's something fundamentally wrong with the organization's proposition. Maybe mm-hmm. the company's not viable to begin with. Mm-hmm. But if the company yeah. is viable and you have one or two people having 20 to 30 meaningful selling conversations a day, y- you will end up making money. It's not rocket science. 
So this is why I brought you on the podcast, the plague, the parasite in our industry and the property management industry is this is called portfolio based property management. And people go back and forth from an operational perspective, whether or not departmentalization or portfolio management is best. The argument for portfolio management is that as the consumer, you have one point of contact, regardless of what your need is, whether or not you have a maintenance issue or you want to boot the tenant or whatever your issue is. But the, the problem, the deeply flawed problem is the expectation for independent property managers that carry their own book of business and whose income comes directly from the number and the quality of the properties that they manage, expecting those people to sell. And part of my frustration is the implicit and the underlying laziness that is really girded up in that. It's the idea that you can put it off on these people, put it off on somebody else. And because everybody's motivated by money and they have the ability to grow their own portfolio, you just kind of expect them to figure it out. And if they don't perform these two completely disparate tasks, which is managing the property, you know, operations and selling, they've somehow failed. And it seems to me to be a very unfair and inequitable philosophy to place on the employee. Portfolio management, A, it's the wrong term. Really what we're talking about is account management. I mean, portfolio management kind of refers to a theory that has nothing to do with what's being discussed here around risk diversification and so on. But I guess you could say, well, they're managing a portfolio of property, but this is no different from what happens in a traditional organization. Most organizations have these thing called, things called accounts. And accounts need to be looked after and they buy regularly. But the folks who are responsible for adding new accounts are not the account managers. The account managers are the customer service reps. You know, the folks who do all of the day-to-day tra -day transactional work looking right. after accounts are customer service reps. That's where all the work's done. Where property management's concerned, it's basically a task-based business. There's a whole bunch of tasks that need to be performed very efficiently in order to do a good job of managing the, managing the account or managing the portfolio of accounts. I think that you're overstating the significance of your relationships if you start to think of it as, you know, account management or portfolio management. It's, it's really not, I mean, it's not like if I have somebody managing a property for me and I just sold a couple of properties that I had in, in, in Australia. Now I'll tell you what pissed me off about property managers is not that they didn't ring me and have conversations with me. It's that they stuffed up the little tasks. They didn't do a great job of the small stuff. So I would much rather have somebody who did a fantastic job of the small stuff rather than somebody who was going to reach out to me and have strategic conversations with me about the performance of my portfolio. I'm not interested, you know, not interested in that. And I think that most folks probably are not. They're probably interested in having the small stuff done properly. So I think what we're doing is we're overhyping it to try and motivate the account manager into being or the CSR into being a salesperson. But that makes no sense. We're better off splitting the two. We're better off saying, look, Acquiring new accounts is the responsibility of the salesperson. And you would expect if you're doing a stellar job of managing someone's existing properties and they buy one more property, they're going to tip it into the same property manager. If they switch and they buy a materially different type of property, if they switch from residential to commercial, maybe you want to involve a salesperson in convincing them to let you handle their commercial as well. But in that case, I would hope that you have a different team looking after the commercial than you do the the residential. So mm -hmm. I, I'm not a fan of the idea of um, portfolio management in that context. And uh, another place where you see this is banks. High net worth clients will have a, 
a, a what do they call it, like a wealth manager or a person allocated. And I, th- I think it's rubbish. I think it ends up, you end up with a person who, who who's not capable of talking at a high level anyway about money, unless maybe you have tens of millions of dollars in the bank. But it ends up making it harder to transact with the, with the organization because all communications have to go through one person. I think w- what people are interested in is speed and efficiency. I do want to just transition now. I went now. to the bank the other day and I said, oh, look, I want to add another account. I went to do it online. It's deactivated. And, that, and they said, that's because you're a platinum you know, account, because you've got more than X number of dollars in the bank, you're a platinum whatever. And we've allocated a wealth manager to you. I said, what does that mean? They, that means you have a personal concierge looking after all your stuff. I said, you mean that you've turned off the ability to add accounts so that I have to talk to a wealth manager? And they said, yes. I said, well, this platinum thing, how do you reverse it? I said, <laughs> and, and they said, we can't. It's automatic. I said, well, I don't want it. I don't want to be platinum. I want to be able to manage my own damn accounts. And I don't want to talk to some 22-year-old. And they said, well, we can't reverse it. I said, well, fine. You leave it, leave it the way it is, but take away this requirement. And I sat there and demanded that this guy get on the phone and call his superior and have, and, and, and the superior got on the computer and, and uh, disentangled me from this um, wealth manager because all it was doing is slowing things down. Yeah. I've spent enough time waiting in bank lobbies to write a small book by now. It's, it's amazing to me how dysfunctional that whole ecosystem has become. I do want to transition now to kind of wrap up the interview with a rapid fire series of questions. We ask these to every guest. They're always a little bit tailored to the guest. And the first of those is this, if you could wave a magic wand and make one recurring objection to the concept of sales process engineering, go away permanently, which objection would it be? This idea that relationships are the antecedent to sales. Whenever we talk about division of labor, somebody will say, well, isn't sales all about relationships? Hmm. And the interesting thing about that question is not actually a question. It's designed to be a rhetorical statement. Folks think that they can kind of drop that in front of you and it's it, it kind of ends the conversation. And as far as I'm concerned, it's bullshit. And it's an example of fuzzy thinking. Relationships do not cause sales so much as they are a consequence of sales. If you have a successful commercial relationship, it, it's likely that some degree of personal familiarity and personal friendship will develop. But if you have an ugly commercial relationship, it's very unlikely that you'll end up with a relationship with the person that you I- interact with. Um, and I think that this idea that relationships cause sales slows sales down significantly. If you want to sell, you need to go and talk to a whole bunch of folks who you don't have a relationship with currently. What is one book that has impacted you the most in your career? Probably The Goal, which you mentioned earlier. Awesome. Love it. Everybody should get a copy. Name one sales trainer that you appreciate, Justin. If I had to simply name one, there's a guy called Grant Cadrone. I've listened to a couple of his I think he's amusing. Uh, um, <laughs> amusing. Okay. <laughs> That's telling. And it, uh, Grant Cardone. There we go. I, and I think that all of the sales trainers have basically the same message. And, and for novice salespeople, it's not a bad message. And when I was a salesperson myself, I vacuumed that stuff up. You know, I drove around in, in my car with a cassette pack back in the days with cassette tapes listening to – I remember I had a, like a 12-tape pack with Zig Ziglar and um, – Tom Hopkins and Dennis Waitley and a bunch yeah. of others. And uh, I listened to those guys until the tapes literally stretched. Uh, um, <laughs> and they started talking slower and slower. That's hilarious. 
<laughs> Love it. All right. So if you could do it all over again, Justin, if you could go back 10 years, what one piece of advice would you have grabbed yourself by the shoulders and tried to deeply get yourself to actually buy in a decade ago? I would have written the book a lot earlier. I think it took us far too long, took me far too long to get the book out. I always knew that it was handicapping us not having the book out. I started writing the book five years ago and a good thing I did was I wrote the first three chapters and started giving away the first three chapters to generate sales opportunities. And, and that was very mm -hmm. successful. But the problem with that is it took the pressure off to finish the book. You know, the book has had a huge impact on n not just the volume of sales opportunities we generate, but it also has simplified our whole sales process because, you know, folks literally read the book and they make contact with us and say, hey, we want you to come implement this with us. So it's made sales so much easier. Yeah, and I'm obviously one of the people that came in early through the blog, salesprocessengineering.net. Check it out if you haven't, but I absolutely was waiting for you to actually finish the book, and it felt like it did take a while, but there's a lot of meaty content there. Last question of the day. I ask this to every single guest. Justin, in your opinion, are entrepreneurs born or bred? If you ask me about anything else, uh, like a salespeople, I, I would say anything else, you can probably learn the skill to a greater extent than any other profession. I think maybe entrepreneurs may be born because if I think of myself relative to my friends, I have a different risk profile. Mm -hmm, I'm a lot right. more comfortable with risk than they are. And I'm not sure it's necessarily a good thing. I think there's a little bit of psychopath in every. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well said. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's a, I don't think it's necessarily a good thing, but I, th I think that it can be a blessing. It can be a curse as well. I, I, I know some business people who, you know, plug away for their entire lives trying to accomplish something that they don't quite accomplish. And as a consequence, earn significantly more and work much longer hours than they could if they went and worked for someone else. I kind of take that as a given, honestly, Justin. I've read so much research bearing out that entrepreneurship is a suboptimal financial outcome for most people. I kind of accept that as as a given. And that really speaks to if you're a true entrepreneur on some level, it's just it's what you want to do. Like the, the finances have to become secondary. And if you're primarily doing it for the money at some point, at some point, you're likely to do something else unless you're one of the few that just has the easy path to striking it rich. And this is why I get frustrated with business owners who um, get upset about my position on commissions. If you made decisions purely on the basis of pursuing the greatest dollar, you probably wouldn't be in this business yourself. You'd probably be working for someone else. So I think not only when you look at your existing staff, it's easy to see that they're not motivated by money above all else. But most business owners are not motivated by money above all else either. You, you talk about rich industrialists, and I guess we all look up to them. Or to, nowadays, it's the Zuckerbergs and the, um, Elon the Gates and, and the Musks. Bezos, and yeah. yeah. But, and Bezos is a perfect example. You know, he, he doesn't do it for the money. I mean, he, he has a high self-esteem, and I think he deserves to do well, and he was going to do well whatever he did. But I think the difference between making billions and making millions uh, it's huge in terms of the size of his bank account, but I don't think it's had any impact on his uh, quality of life. I don't think he was driven by the money. I think he was driven by the by the game. For folks who are interested in Bezos, there's an interview with his brother. So if you go to YouTube and type in Bezos' brother, there's an interview with his, I think, older brother, who's a fireman, interviewing him. Oh, and wow. it's, it's it's a fantastic interview, and it's it's amazing how down-to-earth the two of them are, how close the two of them are as brothers. 
your viewers may want to go watch that listeners um i'm looking at right now i can definitely see the connection guys i want to encourage you to get the book get it on amazon the machine it's meaty i want to just i'll tell you right now guys this is not an easy read this is not in the self-help category it's going to challenge you but there is so much to glean from it and there's so much room for improvement within the property management industry about thinking deeply and coherently about sales those anomalies in the industry the the renters warehouses the HRGs, those companies that are really experiencing explosive growth, they seem odd to so many of us because they're running a different playbook. And in large part, whether or not they're running the playbook that Justin outlines or a different one, there's a level of intentionality and thought going in to their process and the structuring of their organization that is really different than what the average property management company looks like. And this isn't to say you need to be a copycat, but we all have to do the work of thinking hard and deeply about these challenges that directly relate to our long-term success. Justin, I appreciate the work that you have done, both thinking, developing the seed of that thought into something that is now mature, as well as sharing it across the world and with my audience in particular. Thanks for your time today. Thank you, Jordan. 